Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Now that the election is done and the president-elect's team is working out the details of the new administration, I want to take you back about eight months, ancient history in this election, to the end of the presidential primary process. It looked like Donald Trump was going to win the Republican nomination. And there was this speech that Mitt Romney made. It created a lot of waves. You've probably heard snippets of it on the evening news. In it, the previous Republican nominee came out against Trump. So here's what was really interesting about the speech. There was this strand of criticism going through it, attacking the things that Trump was the most proud of. What little he has said is enough to know that he would be very bad for American workers and for American families. But you say, wait, wait, wait. Isn't he a huge business success? Doesn't he know what he's talking about? No, he isn't. And no, he doesn't. His, uh, That jab went right to the heart of the success that Trump felt like he had been building up for decades. And he had a press conference a few days later, and he hit back at Romney. Mitt was a disaster as a candidate. He was begging for my endorsement. I could have said, Mitt, drop to your knees. He would have dropped to his knees. He was begging. You know, he doesn't mention the fact that I built a city on the west side of Manhattan, that I built buildings all over Manhattan. And he talked about a water company, which, by the way, I still have. I supply all my clubs with the water. You know, numerous of those things I have, the magazine, other things. We've just been through more than a year in which the idea of wearing pride on your sleeve was something that some people loved, other people not so much. So how good or bad a thing is it to be prideful? Scholars have actually been thinking about pride at least since Darwin, who argued that this is an emotion that is part of the core of who we are as humans. Jessica Tracy has studied pride for years, the science of it, the genetics of it, how it helps us, how it hurts us. She, of course, had no idea it was going to become so high profile in this election. She's a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and the author of the book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. Jessica, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, what does pride mean to you? Like, how would you define it? Well, pride is a positive emotion, which means it's an emotion that feels good, right? It's a pleasurable feeling experience. But it's different from other positive emotions like happiness because the good feelings are all about the self, right? They're all about me feeling good about myself, typically because I did something that I think is good or that other people think is good, or I just kind of am feeling, you know what? I'm, I'm a good person in various ways. I'm successful, I'm achieving, I'm nice, I'm kind. And so that's what makes pride, I think, really interesting because no other positive emotion is all about evaluating oneself and thinking about how we feel about ourselves. I think in our society, we have a little bit of a mixed feeling about pride and whether it's good for you or not good for you. I mean, it was one of the seven deadly sins. Um, But we also do say take pride in your work, which indicates that it's a good thing and that you should have pride. Is there a person that illustrates to you positive pride, you know, pride that drove them towards something that if that was not a driving force, 
you know, they wouldn't have accomplished what they could have. Sure. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, I should say you, you make a really important distinction. This distinction does exist. And we've actually come up with different names for the two kinds of prides because lots of languages have different different names for them. We don't in English, which creates confusion, I think. So we call the good pride authentic pride. And we call the other pride, which is the more arrogant pride, we call that hubristic pride, which is, of course, coming from the Greek's term hubris. And absolutely, I think the good pride, authentic pride, is what motivates people to achieve to be good parents, to be good friends, be good relationship partners. Really all of the good things that we see in people and we want to see is driven by a desire to feel that kind of pride. And so one example is I talk about the ultramarathoner Dean Karnazes, who's run, I think, more consecutive miles than maybe anyone else in the world. He runs these insane races that are you know, over 100 miles long just by himself, and he'll run for days at a time. And in his memoir, he talks about how he was a runner early in his life, in, in high school, and he was really into it and loved it. And then, like many people, he kind of quit. You know, he stopped running and went on with life and went to college and got a business degree and got a job and so on and was living a perfectly fine life. And somewhere around, it was actually right before he turned 30, he sort of felt that something was missing. For whatever reason, his career wasn't giving him the sense of accomplishment hmm. and self-satisfaction that we all crave and that I think we evolved to crave. We all need to feel good about ourselves. And so he was having this sort of crisis, I mean, not a midlife crisis, I guess early life crisis, um, which is lucky for him. And uh, on his 30th birthday, he sort of had this little freak out where he realized, oh, my God, my life is not going the way I want it to go and just started running. And it was kind of, I think, an impulsive thing. He just sort of ran. It was at night. He had the freak out. He was, I think, probably a little drunk and ran from where he lived in San Francisco all the way to Half Moon Bay, which is about 30 miles. Ran all night. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's kind of like an amazing Forrest story. Gump. He, he just keeps yeah, running exactly. and running. Exactly. And running. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what he realized after that is that the next day he talks about he couldn't walk. <laughs> Obviously, if you haven't run for years and then you run 30 miles, you're going to be in bad shape. Right. But he realizes that this was really important to him, that running and, and trying hard to succeed in this kind of athletic endeavor was really a core part of his identity and, and a way that he could feel good about himself. And once he found that, he said, OK, this is what I'm going to shape my life around. And he became this famous ultramarathoner who you know, has done all kinds of amazing feats. He's inspired millions of people and really kind of found a way to get that authentic pride. Now, how do you know that that's pride and that that's not just him feeling like bored, you know, that he has a job, it's mm. not that exciting, right. and he's looking for something to spice things up. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you raise a good question, and, and far be it for me to say, no, there's no way it was boredom. I would say running 30 miles at a time can be pretty boring. So my guess is that, you know, that's not, I think, what most of us think, I'm going to stir things up, I'm going to go run for miles and miles. You know, things like that that are actually painful, tedious, difficult, not particularly exciting for the most part. But that people do despite the pain. I, I actually think the only way we can explain that is this desire to feel good about the self. And, and we do so many things that are like that, right? I mean, on an everyday basis, most of us choose the harder thing. You know, there are, of course, days when we don't. There are days when we say, hey, I'm going to chill out today and just relax and watch some TV and drink some beers. But there are other days where we say, no, I'm not going to do the fun thing. I'm going to do the hard thing because I want to succeed in various ways. I want to, you know, take that photography class, even though it's going to be a lot of work. I want to run that marathon, even though the training is going to really hurt and it would be much easier to lie on the couch. Or I want to work all night to develop computer programming skills. This is what Bill Gates did, mm -hmm. you know, to become one of the best programmers in the world. I really think the only way we can explain those kinds of behaviors that go against, in many ways, 
our sort of basic survival and reproduction needs, right. the sort of more basic needs that we all have. We don't need to do these things to achieve those needs. It's you know all these people we're talking about people who you know Dean Karnazes is a great example. He had a perfectly successful career. He was very successfully supporting himself and his wife. So it wasn't about finding a way to you know get food on the table. In fact, if anything, when he gave up that career to become a runner, that became much more difficult. But that's the whole point about pride. We we have this desire to feel good about ourselves so desperately that we will give up these sort of more basic level needs in order to attain it. I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Jessica Tracy, a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and author of the book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. So then I guess the question is, where does pride go off the rails? I mean, where does it do something like uh, make you cheat on a test because you so desperately want to be the best that you're willing to compromise who you are? Yeah, no, I mean, this is this is fascinating about pride, I think, that because it is not just one thing, right? We talked about authentic pride, but there is this hubristic pride as well. And that's the sense of arrogance and conceitedness that we all have in us the potential for. And of course, some people experience it more than others and show it more than others. And some of us feel it but hold it back. But we all have that potential because that, too, I think, is part of human nature. And it really can lead to all kinds of destructive behaviors. So our research shows that people who tend to feel this kind of hubristic pride have problematic friendships, right? They, they have trouble making friends and keeping friends because really what they value more is boosting themselves up at the expense of their friends. So they'll put others down to feel good about themselves. They'll behave aggressively to try to get power and control. And so the result of that is behaviors that can be really destructive, like cheating and lying. Um, in the book, I talk about Lance Armstrong as an example of this, I think, because he's someone who clearly early on had to be motivated by authentic pride. I mean, the amount of hours that he put in riding a bike, which gets really painful over time, there's no other way to explain it except that he wanted to get that sense, that that feeling about himself that he was good, that right, he was worthy. Right. And then yet we know that something changed, right? That, you know, he was caught doping for many, many years and lying, you know, lying to everyone around, bullying others into lying as well, bullying his teammates. And all these are exactly the kinds of behaviors that we expect of someone who would feel hubristic pride. And so what I think it is, is you sort of forget those feelings feel really good, right? Pride feels great. Authentic pride and hubristic pride both feel really good because it's this, wow, I'm, I myself is good. We evolved to really want that. And it's, it's adaptive for us to want that. But then if you start getting those feelings and kind of clinging to them and really relying on them, you forget that really the way to get them is to keep trying to achieve, keep trying to strive toward that toward that great feeling about the self, not sort of rest on your laurels, focus on how great you are, focus on the accolades you're getting from others. Because as soon as you start to do that, then, you know, the, the memory that, well, wait a minute, I had to work really hard to get those things kind of goes away. And instead it becomes about, you know, anything you can do to get the accolades. And so sure, cheating is a much easier way to get the accolades. I'm going to read you a quote uh, from Arnold Schwarzenegger, who uh, gave an interview to, to Rolling Stone. You've written about this. Um, he was 28 years old. And this is what he said. Around the time of grammar school, I had this incredible desire to be recognized. I didn't care about the money. I thought about the fame, about just being the greatest. I was dreaming about being some dictator of a country or some savior like Jesus, just to be recognized. 
And I wonder, when you think about narcissism, we talked about pride being kind of baked into the cake that we, Mm -hmm. it's innate in some ways that we feel pride. It's not necessarily something that people taught us. Um, It's just part of our genetic makeup. Is it, are people who are narcissists, is that part of their genetic makeup or is that something that, you know, uh, can be learned and unlearned over time? Yeah, well, so it's it's a complicated issue, I would say. Um, the tendency to feel pride, that's absolutely baked into our genetic makeup. And pride does take these two forms. Um, and, and I think there's evolutionary reasons for that because both prides end up getting us power, getting us status, getting us ahead. Even hubristic pride, people who feel a lot of hubristic pride do end up at the highest ranks of, you know, the totem pole, the the social ladder. And, you know, Donald Trump is, of course, the, the current great example of that, where he's <laughs> someone who demonstrates almost astonishing levels of hubristic pride and yet has done incredibly well, right? I mean, he's, you know, at, at really the highest level one could be almost in terms of American social status. So you're saying in some ways pride works in whatever form it comes in. Yes. I mean... Exactly. Okay. Both forms work. Both forms get you power and they get you a little bit of a different kind of power. The kind of power that Trump has is different than the kind of power that someone who feels more authentic pride typically gets. Um, Trump's is more based on sort of this dominance, we call it. It's about he has power because in many ways people are afraid of him. You know, he sort of says, listen, don't mess with me. I'm going to get power. And it's sort of the ancient, almost, you know, the chimpanzee kind of power you can think of it, right? This is how non-human primates have been getting power for millennia. Um, And and we humans have that ability too. We do give power to people who intimidate us Mm. and who we're afraid not to give power to. In terms of whether narcissism is, is part of our genetic profile, on the one hand, yes, absolutely. There, There is a genetic basis for narcissism, which is to say if you have a certain profile of various genes, not a narcissism gene, I don't think there's a narcissism gene, but if you have a certain profile toward, for example, aggression, maybe, you know, uh, neuroticism, there's a, there's a variety of traits that we do know there's distinct genes for. If you have that profile, you're going to be more prone to being narcissistic, but absolutely life experiences matter. And you know, in terms of the life experiences that cause someone to be narcissistic or to experience a lot of hubristic pride, there's different theories out there. Most psychologists think that it has something to do with some sort of early life experience in which you're made to feel like you need to be perfect and like you are perfect. The parents typically sort of layer on young narcissists this idea of you're great, you're great, you're great. But of course, the young narcissist often doesn't feel great because Mm -hmm. no one's perfect. And so then the child is sort of left in this bind when they feel like, wait a minute, here are my parents saying I'm I'm perfect in every way, but I know I'm not. I can't let that out. I have to hide that. And so you get this pattern where they suppress these sort of these feelings of I'm not good enough. And that becomes this unconscious shame. And that an explicit or conscious level, what they show is I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm amazing. I'm the best around. You know, we have heard that in the last several decades, the percentage of kids who say in questionnaires, you know, I'm a really important person, I'm a special person, that that has gone up over time. And I wonder if so much of the pride that we feel is innate, why is it that more people than, let's say, in 1960, you know, more kids feel like, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty special person? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I will say the evidence is mixed on that. There's some psychologists who argue that that if you do those analyses a different way, you don't necessarily see that increase over time. Mm. And, and of course, you know, people, my parents tell me that back in the 60s and the 70s, they were saying the same thing about their generation. But at the same time, I think we're aware now, and this happened in the 80s and 90s, in the 90s especially, that self-esteem is important. And so in the 90s, there was this whole self-esteem movement where in schools, 
teachers would try to teach kids to feel good about themselves. Right. And that's great, but the problem is you can't do it by saying, you're great, feel good about yourself. You know, you have to give kids a reason to feel good about themselves. You can't just tell them to because kids are smart, right? And so they'll know when it's when it's based on nothing. You know, the policies where everyone on a team gets a trophy or every team gets a trophy, kids know the trophy is meaningless. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they're excited about the shininess of it at first, but they don't get any real sense of achievement or accomplishment from a trophy that everyone gets. And so in the same way, what you want to do is teach kids to work hard and feel good about working hard and achieving as a result of hard work. And Carol Dweck has, is, is a researcher who's done amazing work showing exactly this, that if kids are taught and told after an achievement, hey, you worked really hard for that, they will go on and continue working hard. But if they're told more, you must be really smart, then then they sort of stop because they think, okay, wait, I'm smart. I don't want to change that view by trying again and failing. I'll just I'll stop here. I'll give up now. And so what you want to reward is the hard work, not the sort of bland, you're really smart. And because kids don't exactly know how to how to maintain that kind of reward, right? Have you learned anything in doing all your research about sort of how you would like people to think about pride in this society differently? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, it's interesting. I think we do have this sense that you know, we want our kids to feel pride, and that is out there. But at the same time, like you said, we also have the sense that pride is a deadly sin. And, you know, religions have, have advocated against pride for a very long time. Well, and we also all have the experience of sitting down with somebody for half an hour, and they just tell us mm-hmm. how great they are. And that's not right. a good experience. No, that's not good. Exactly. <laughs> so right. go- going no, no one forward that. from that, you don't want your child to be like that generally. Absolutely. Absolutely. But so I think the result is there's a lot of confusion about what to do with pride. Is it okay to feel? Is it okay for me to say I'm proud of myself? Is it okay to be proud of my children? Is this something I should avoid? I think people don't really know the answer to this because we conflate these two different things, right? And so I think by making the distinction and understanding that hubristic pride and authentic pride are different, they have different causes, drastically different outcomes, um, and, and different sort of associations with personality, right? People who feel authentic pride are, are, for most of us, the kind of people we want our kids to be. High-achieving, outgoing, extroverted, you know, yes, successful, but not bragging about it. Jessica Tracy is the author of Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. She's also a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This is great. And I'm so proud. I'm so proud. I'm so proud of you. If you ever want to listen to Innovation Hub while you're on the train or on the subway or somewhere that your radio doesn't live, you can find us on iTunes. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. So here's one of the big things I remember from biology and studying genes in school. Blue eyes are recessive and brown eyes are dominant. It's actually more complicated than what I learned, but the idea was that if you've got two parents, they've both got blue eyes, they're pretty sure to have a blue-eyed child. If a child's got a gene for both blue eyes and brown eyes, the brown-eyed gene is going to win out. Advances in the world of biology over the past several years have now added up to this. In some animals, scientists are now able to alter the genome of an organism. So the characteristics it passes on to its offspring are different than the characteristics it was born with. And if you create what's called a gene drive system, a particular feature 
can become more than dominant. So, so powerful that every offspring is going to have that feature. And every offspring of the offspring, no matter what the mates have, will also have that feature. That's a big deal. And it's a scary deal. We have more power to shape the surrounding environment than we've ever had before. And we haven't yet developed the tools necessary to decide how we should use it, at least not with sufficient wisdom and humility. Kevin Esvelt leads the Sculpting Evolution Lab at MIT, and one of his focuses is mice. A single researcher working in the lab could make an organism where if they make a mistake or it gets out, could start a process of changing all of the mice over many, many generations, mind you. Do you as a scientist worry about that? Every day, because we do make mistakes in lab, and not all scientists are necessarily aware of the consequences. Esfeld is at the forefront of thinking about where these new biological tools are going to take us and who has the right to use them. He says he's not so much worried about an alteration to an animal that a scientist might make as he is worried about ensuring the public knows what the heck is going on. The odds are it's not going to have any ecological impact whatsoever. But that doesn't matter. What would that screw-up say about our ability to keep control and responsibly develop technologies of this power. That's what I'm worried about. This is someone who has helped develop a powerful new technology, and he says he feels morally responsible for what happens. So here's the plan. He wants to launch a test with extreme caution, total transparency. The test ground would be two wealthy islands in the Atlantic, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. The islands struggle with a very serious problem, Lyme disease. It's a major problem that is destroying the iconic image of American childhood. I mean, we both have three-year-olds, right? Right. We want our kids to be able to run through the woods without a care. Right, right, And nowadays, Lyme disease is so prevalent that, well, we're at least going to have a care even if they're not. That's right. And you have to really closely inspect your kids afterwards because the ticks are very small and you never know where they're lodged and that kind of thing. I've talked to a lot of leaders of environmental groups who are very concerned that because the kids don't run around outside, they're not growing up with the same kind of appreciation for the natural world. So the question is, what is the smallest possible change we could make in the environment that would solve the problem of tick-borne disease? And can we develop that technology, that kind of change, with a well-informed, yet reasonably small, local population that really cares about it? And we want those things because we care about informed consent. Right. We we can't do this without the people who will be af- affected by it because we're altering the shared environment. So with Lyme disease, we're looking to the islands of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard because they have some of the highest rates of tick-borne disease in the country. I was shocked when I was looking into this. You know, I mean, I don't know what percentage of the population has Lyme disease in general, but I would guess it's pretty small. 300,000 cases a year, almost all in the Northeast. Cases. Okay. But in Nantucket, it's like almost half of people have Lyme disease. So, I mean, this is a really, really major, major problem for them. A little, you know, island right off the coast of Massachusetts. Definitely. So the problem with tick-borne disease is, of course, it's the ticks that bite us and infect us. But the ticks aren't born infected. They have to bite an animal that is infected first. And that's not actually the deer. The deer aren't a host of for the Lyme bacterium or okay. any of the other tick-borne They just go pathogens. for a ride on the deer. Well, the, tick, the more deer there are, the more ticks there are. Okay. Because the ticks bite three times, and the third bite is a deer, and then they lay eggs. So okay. every deer often will have a, a thousand 
female ticks attached to them. Every one of those female ticks will lay more than a thousand eggs. So you can think of every deer as a walking million ticks. That's that is a striking and scary image. But okay, continue. (laughs) So this is why there's been controversy over maybe on the islands if they could just well, if they just shot all the deer, then they would not have a problem. But they've decided they're not going to do this Mm -hmm. because, well, Bambi. But then what if instead we could tweak either the mice which are the source of most of the infections because most ticks get infected when they bite a white-footed mouse, which is the native mouse here in the Northeast. Or the ticks. If we altered either the mice or the ticks so they couldn't carry disease, then the problem would largely go away. Right, right, right. So the idea is if we take a mouse that has resistance because we've helped it along with vaccines or because it's been exposed to lots of tick bites and Lyme disease, it will develop antibodies that protect it from those things and then we encode those in the genomes of baby mice, then those baby mice will grow up immune from birth, and they'll pass that immunity on to some of their offspring. So essentially, you're creating a community on, let's say, Nantucket of mice that give it a little time. Mice don't live super long, but give it a few generations. All the mice are going to be resistant to Lyme disease. So when the ticks bite them, there's not going to be you know, Lyme disease passed on. That's the idea. But to be clear, we are not proposing using a gene drive. After talking to the communities, it became clear that most of them would prefer that we release potentially hundreds of thousands of engineered mice that are nonetheless 100% mouse, rather than, say, a thousand with some foreign DNA that would cause it to spread over generations. And our number one rule in this is we do only what the community wants. But on the mainland, there are billions of mice. Mm -hmm. So on the mainland, we would need some form of drive system. So our idea is that we should start on an uninhabited island with mice that don't have a drive system. And we're hoping that the citizens of Nantucket and the vineyard can help us choose which island they want, decide who should monitor the experiment. So it's going to be some little island off the coast of Massachusetts that's not inhabited but has some mice on it. Has mice that have, has ticks that has lime Lyme-infected ticks. Yeah, yeah. And then release enough mice there to immunize the local population. See what happens. Does the rate of infection in the ticks go way down? Because no infected ticks, no infected kids. And then see what else happens to the ecosystem there. And then the citizens of Nantucket and the Vineyard could decide whether they wanted to release mice on Nantucket and the Vineyard. Okay. Uh, By the way, when you say to Nantucket, you know, we could do this by bringing you 100,000 mice... Have you ever imagined what that looks like? You're bringing over 100,000 mice to an island. Sure, but that's not as many mice as they already have. Okay, but (laughs) can you imagine you're on a boat with 100,000 mice? You've thought about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) the reason why it's feasible, though, is because in research, I mean, most of the, or at least a large fraction of the mice used in research every year, of which there are well over 100 million, are raised at Charles River or or Jackson Labs, both in the Northeast. So with your Lyme disease project, what feedback have you gotten from Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket? Are they willing to let you fiddle with some mice and bring them over on your bark of 100,000 mice? Well, so far we've had one public meeting in each case and met with the boards of health, and the response has been remarkably positive. Hmm. If they consent to proceed, um, when would the mice be introduced? What, what kind of timeline are you looking at? 
probably about seven years from now on Nantucket oh, okay. Vineyard. Wow. Like we're giving right. people plenty of time. This is not overnight. We're going to have many, many subsequent meetings to discuss things. Again, we want as many people to be involved as possible, regardless of how it comes out. Right. And from my perspective, if people say no, that will be disappointing. But it's sometimes it's equally valuable to show, as a scientist, that we are willing to drop it and walk away. Because the people need to know that we are willing to drop it and walk away. That has not always been true to our shame. So then let's talk about the mainland. If you wanted to change something like mice that carry Lyme disease or mosquitoes that carry malaria, Zika, whatever it is, um, obviously you cannot say to a mosquito or a mouse, just so you know, the people who've agreed to this live within these boundaries. But when you get to the the sign that says you are entering the next town, you really need to stop there. Don't reproduce, just don't cross it. Um, so at that point, when you decide, gosh, Zika is just too big a problem or malaria is just too big a problem or whatever, who gets to decide um, whether animals are permanently changed so that they don't, can't, you know, carry those diseases anymore? And that's the hard question because it's clear that everyone all the people who might be affected by that change must have a voice and arguably a vote, although not everyone gets a vote in every country in the world. Mm -hmm. But we don't have good ways of making those kinds of decisions. The closest parallel is biocontrol, where there's an invasive species that's causing a problem, so ecologists go back to the native environment, try to find a predator or a parasite that is exclusive to that species and that species only and then introduce it to control it, mm -hmm. which recently, the vast majority of the time, has worked perfectly. But those that introduced parasite or predator on the invasive species is, of course, doesn't know what geographic boundaries are either. So countries have to agree. Right. So right. in the case of Africa, which is most urgent because malaria is the, certainly the biggest problem that we could solve with this, the most recent example was that the cassava mealybug was the introduced pest that was devastating cassava crops. And so they had to agree to introduce a parasite that controlled the cassava mealybug. And they did it. But somehow, the fact that it's deliberately engineered at the genomic level makes it more dramatic in people's minds. Hmm. It's more intentional on our part, and that means people are more concerned by it. Is and it more so, dramatic in your mind? Frankly, no. Okay. I mean, the process by which, for example, we breed traditional crops nowadays, traditional organic non-GM crops are created primarily by creating lots of genetic variants through radiation or chemical mutagenesis. That's not very natural. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that creates mutations all over the genome, most of which are not characterized or tested in any way. We just look for the phenotype. That is the characteristics of the plant. Are the berries bigger and more succulent and juicy and taste better? Right. And if they are, then you pick that one, never mind what other changes to the chemistry of the plant might be made. And we're not actually required to regulate that in any way. So you're saying we have uh, ideas in our mind about what's natural and what's unnatural. But to you, looking at it as a scientist, knowing what goes into the quote-unquote natural and what goes into the quote-unquote unnatural, it feels more like a spectrum than a black-and-white situation. Absolutely. And when you think about it, technology is all about, it's the definition of unnatural. Technology is what we use to change the natural state of being. And the natural state of being for us is largely being disease-ridden and poverty-stricken with never enough to eat and constantly dying of horrible diseases like smallpox, which now we can thankfully get rid of because of technology. I mean, mm -hmm. all, of, all of medicine, all of agriculture, all of 
not, not just the electronic media that we're using to communicate. Everything is technology that separates us from, well, living in caves. Now, when you sit back and think about where this is all headed, this technology in general, um, and you think about, you know, the president of the United States or, um, you know, the prime minister of Great Britain being told, like, okay, here's what you could do. There, there are these really big problems. You are in a democracy, but you also have been chosen as the person in charge. Um, where in three, four, five years do you think we're going to be in terms of addressing some of the you know, Zika, malaria, Lyme, some of these uh, diseases that are transmitted by animals that we now, in fact, can change so that they don't transmit them anymore. I'd be surprised if we do much in three, four, five years. Okay. Just as a society, we don't have the governance systems necessary to make those decisions. And our track record of introducing new technologies is frankly terrible. That's why there is so much suspicion over GMO foods, for example. I mean, it, they basically you can check off the list of everything not to do when introducing a new technology. Like That's the classic case study. Can you imagine that decades down the line, we won't have availed ourselves of the ability to eradicate really serious diseases that are carried by animals? I don't think so. I think one way or another it will be done. And the question is what will the social consequences for how we deal with technology be? Because this is just the first step. This is a technology that, while it is unique in its ability for, to allow one researcher to affect so many other people, not that it can't be countered, actually. You can, this is also unique in that you actually can defend against it. It spreads very slowly. It's very easy to detect by sequencing. You can't hide it. And you can build another one that will, oh, that will do a find and replace on the original one. So if something goes wrong, you can find and replace and, and remove it. And we're working on ways of trying to turn the population back to the exact original sequence. But we know very well we have not been kind to the planet. We have definitely messed with ecosystems before t to sometimes tragic results that things don't always go back exactly the way that they were. So even if we can turn the DNA back, that doesn't mean that the arrangement of all the species in the ecosystem goes back. And so this is a technology that looks scarier than it actually is which means that it's perfect training wheels to get us to figure out how to deal with the things that are more powerful. Huh. and have Because this is the first step towards what I would call a shared impact technology, that it can't be done without affecting large numbers of people. And it's easiest when it's just a one person, one choice. And we don't have, we, we need to figure out how to do the other side. Kevin Esfeld is a biologist. He runs the Sculpting Evolution Group at the MIT Media Lab. Kevin, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks so much. If you want to read more about gene drives and the work that Kevin Esfeld is doing, we've got the basic science as well as info about his project to potentially eliminate Lyme disease from Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard at our website, innovationhub.org. If you think about the way that charities ask you for money, the way they frame it, what they're often asking for is the means to buy hungry people food or shelter or farm animals or cook stoves or whatever. But data has been piling up in favor of another form of giving, direct payment 
which is to say cash, just handing over the money and letting the poor or the displaced go and spend it. It might sound crazy, it might sound risky, but more and more organizations are becoming converts. In 2013 and 2014, this sort of cash transfer happened under the supervision of the UN for a whole bunch of Syrian refugees who had come to Lebanon. Rada Rajkotia watched what happened, and she's here to tell us about this shift in helping some of the world's neediest people, particularly refugees. She's the director of economic recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Rada, thank you so much for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. So what do you think has spurred groups that normally might have thought about giving food or blankets or tents or whatever else to refugees to say, you know, no, we're going to give cash. You know, I think at the most basic level, what we've learned is that it works. Giving people cash, um, you know, historically, people have thought we should define when people have lost their homes, we should, they'll need shelter, they'll need blankets. Um, And actually, with time, what we've learned is that um, people can really make up their own minds and are very capable of deciding for themselves what they need. And so actually, in many instances, just giving them money to do that um, is served just as effectively. And I think what's taken a, a little bit of time to catch up is just making sure that it's being done responsibly, right? So I think the the typical fears that people would have are, you know, will people spend money on things that they shouldn't spend money on? Um, you know, are they going to buy, you know, bad food or be, um, you know, gamble it away, um, right. you know, or, or misuse it? And, and so it's taken a while to conduct research to be sure that people are really spending money on things that they need. And overwhelmingly, and perhaps unsurprisingly to many people, that we have found that really when people are in need and in some of the most you know, destitute situations after a conflict or um, following a big natural disaster, they really do prioritize the things that we would all expect them to. So they will prioritize shelter and housing and Um, food and water. So really some of those most basic needs. So if they prioritize those things, why isn't it more effective for a large group that has more effective buying power to say, you know, instead of everybody going out and buying 10 pounds of flour for themselves, which is fine, how about we go and buy 1,000 pounds of flour or 10,000 pounds of flour? We can get it at a cheaper rate, you know, we can buy in bulk and then we'll give it out to you. If people are spending the money the same way that the agencies are spending the money, why mm-hmm. give it to people? So um, traditionally, that is how aid has been delivered. So from the U.S., for instance, food would be shipped that was grown in the U.S. and then would be shipped to places in Africa or in Asia where there are food crises. And then it would be, um, after purchasing it from U.S. buyers, it would then be distributed to people who need it on the ground. Now, um, that's great for U.S. sellers Mm -hmm. of of food, but what it doesn't do is help local markets. So in those places in Africa or Asia where there may be local producers, um, those people are that much more disadvantaged because now they're not able to um, get themselves up on the feet because they're competing with essentially free food that's being delivered from elsewhere. So tell me how you've seen this actually work on the ground. Like, is there a place that you would point to that you'd say... Here's a really interesting kind of case study of how this works. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at a place like Afghanistan 
or um, some of the, you know, some of the places where we've seen that kind of distribution of goods go wrong are, you know, Iraq, I think, um, in the early 2000s, we saw up to 70%, you know, 50 to 70% of things that people were being given reappearing in local markets and bazaars, right? So we were that process of defining what people want and so giving them the food that we think they would want and and that sort of thing just didn't work. I see. So you're giving them rice and you end up seeing the rice being sold secondhand right, somewhere else. Right. Yeah, okay. Because they're saying, actually, I don't want the rice, but, you know, if I can sell the rice and get some money, then I can buy what I really want, right. which is just another food item. Right, right, it's just, right, right. You know. So that's, that's how it works when it goes wrong. I think when it works really well, um, you know, it can be incredibly empowering. So in um, Lebanon, in that same instance that you mentioned with the, um, with the big U- United Nations uh, refugee program, when 90,000 households were targeted, we found that people were overwhelmingly spending money on, um, on food, on water, on really basic items, some health expenditures, some education expenditures. But then what was really surprising and really exciting was some of the unexpected positive benefits, right? So we found that, you know, those households, that, that was Syrian refugees, and they were incredibly in debt. So they were about, on average, five to $600 in debt per household. Huh. And that's because they've really sold everything to be able to move. They're, you know, they've landed in a new environment, and so they're buying they're getting food on credit. They're perhaps renting um, accommodation, but without having resources to pay for it upfront. So they're in enormous no- amounts of debt. And so the way that they would typically cope with this is that they will all start working. So the parents will work in whatever kind of illegal fashion they can. Children are sent out to work. And we found that just by giving small amounts of cash, so you know, $100, $130 a month for maybe two months or three months, um, children, um, there were half the number of children who were being sent out. Um, so, yeah, it was That's really... That's a big you know, drop-off when you... It's huge. To give somebody cash, and I guess that means to them they can repay the people that they owe money to without exactly. having their, you yeah. know, 10-year-old do work. Exactly, and it's the decision between, you know, do I need to send my 12-year-old out to work or not, um, which is huge. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Radha Rajkotia. She's the director of economic recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Um, one of the ways that you give out this cash, and and you have to explain it to me, is that you give people who are, say, going from Pakistan to Afghanistan money on their cell phone. So is what you do that you have like someone there on the border and they're like, what's your cell phone number? How can I text you some money? Right. Literally. Yeah. So people come across and we get assessments. So we understand who's in the household, how many people, um, how many kids do you have? How old are they? How many adults are with you? So we get basic demographic information from them and we get a mobile number. And when we get their mobile number, um, what's funny is that often, you know, in other places, people don't necessarily want to be found again because they think, you know, you're just going to be here to bother me and ask me more questions and I don't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, I don't necessarily want to be found again and have to do more kind of surveying or questioning. Um, but here, because they're like, they because they know that they're going to get a money transfer from it, right. they're very keen. And so what's great is that we'll they'll give us our phone, their phone numbers um, and they will, um, and that way we can give them a transfer. But what's good is that then we can also follow up with them. So we'll, we can a month later say, we can give them a call and say, 
what did you spend that money on? You know, what, what, how did it help you? And so from a monitoring perspective to make sure that people are getting and using money in, in sort of appropriate ways, we're able to follow up much more easily too. Um, when you think about your whole sort of career and ever since you started thinking about aid and how you should give aid to people and what helps them best, does what's happening now in terms of big organizations thinking really seriously about cash, does it feel like a shift to you in kind of the history of how people have given aid to other people? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's hugely disruptive. And it's good. It's it's. I think it's so positive. Um, but it's also, um, it's tough for agencies to catch up with that change, right? So we are, so now for the International Rescue Committee, we've made a commitment that 25% of our humanitarian assistance should be in the form of cash relief. It's forcing us to think about how we consider other types of interventions. Now, you think, you know, food aid, for instance, that's been a cornerstone of assistance and, and giving for decades. Yeah, it's one of those iconic images that you think of from television, totally. right? People being given, you know, whatever it is, rice, bags of stuff. Yeah, like don't waste your food. Someone in Africa could be eating it, right. right? Like it's like it's, you know, it's it's the stuff that we were told as kids. It's, you know, it's been part of the sort of iconography of aid and and assistance for as long as, you know, as long as we can remember. And so now we're being forced to think, well, actually it could we do better if we just gave people money could we do better and mm-hmm. research has now shown yes we could mm. it's more it's as effective and it's more cost effective to just give people money and so now it's forcing us to think about other areas you know and for us to question okay well we think what we're doing and have been doing um whether that's in terms of you know giving people other forms of assistance and what we want to be able to say is, you know, maybe training, frankly, some of these trainings that we do for for um, job searches. But it's actually forcing us to say, well, you know, should we be investing in all of those things? Would it be as effective if we just gave them the money and let them get on with it? Radha Rajkotia is the Director of Economic Recovery at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've got more about the shift from giving stuff to giving money on our website, innovationhub.org. And there you're also going to find some of the big studies that convince the aid community to potentially change their thinking. And now for the story of a man who helped revolutionize how people do money transfers. His name was Ezra. He was born in the early 1800s into a very young America that didn't have a whole lot of infrastructure. And as he grew up, he got a bunch of mechanical jobs, and he realized he was good at creating that infrastructure. Then there was a huge economic downturn, and he got laid off. It was called the Panic of 1837. It happened because people were speculating, people were driving up prices of real estate, and I know you're shocked, but there was a crash. A few years later, though, Ezra got a big break. He knew a guy who knew a guy named Samuel Morse. Morse had been working on a little project called the Telegraph for a few years, and Ezra was called in to figure out how you lay the wires for the Telegraph. Initially, he thought, I'll create a special plow, it'll go a couple feet deep, and we'll lay them underground. Then he realized that wasn't going to work out. So he went with hanging the lines from poles that you could hammer into the ground. 
The first message on the first telegraph line in the U.S. was, of course, sent using Morse code, and it was, what hath God wrought? It went from D.C. to Baltimore on this new line that nobody really knew if it would function. Over the next few years, Ezra got richer. He was more heavily involved with the telegraph, and he helped form a company called Western Union. Soon, he was making north of $100,000 a year, and this was in the middle of the 1800s. One cause he really believed in was education. So he gave money to libraries, he gave money to educate doctors and nurses. But Western Union had made him so rich that he started to think bigger. He offered up funds to build a university right on his farm in Ithaca, New York. And the school was named after him, Ezra Cornell. By the time he died in the 1870s, Western Union had introduced a new service, one that allowed people to transfer money. A century later, that ability to send funds, very often to people in your family who are elsewhere in the country or elsewhere in the world, that has turned into Western Union's calling card and the reason that many people know about the company today. Unfortunately, if you want to send a Western Union telegram, you're a little late. They discontinued that service in 2006. I had a fight with my baby. Oh, how sorry I am. She won't talk to me no how. I'm gonna send a telegram. Western Union. Western Union. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.